From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the rabbis are back from summer vacation and kick off season four with renowned Russian refusenik Yosef Mendelovich. Reb Yosef shares some of his incredible sacrifices to keep Shabbos and wear a yarmulke, discusses how he tries to inspire younger generations, and talks about the joy of his hunger strikes. Also, the rabbis talk about how they spent their summer vacations and the progress they made on their goals. Plus, how the rabbis decide when to interrupt their vacation and come back for the community. And ideas for possible Behind the Bima swag. All this and more on the season premiere of Behind the Bima. Good evening. It is Wednesday night at 9 p.m. I'm your host, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, joined by my dear friends and colleagues, Rabbi Philip Moskowitz and Rabbi Josh Brody. And we are here to take you... Behind the Bima. I'm trying to lift up my... Thing. You, we're here to take you behind the Bima, clearly. There's a lot of practice here. We're a little bit out of practice. It is so great right. to be back together. I'll tell you, life felt different. Even though this whole behind the Bima phenomenon is fairly recent and new, it felt uh, so different not having it. But it's great to be back together. That was still our old opening. Our new one is being worked on with our new logo. And speaking of new logos, want to thank our generous sponsor for tonight, our dear friend Alana Lando of Alana Landau Designs. You can be in touch with her at alanalandau at gmail.com or her phone number 646-283-1091. Alana is a dear friend of Behind the Bima. She's not only a good friend of Behind the Bima, she's a talented graphic designer. And our brand new logo that we're getting enormous feedback on was designed by the great Alana Lando of Alana Lando Designs. She, by the way, her other customer, Behind the Bima, and who else? Do you know who else she works for? Art Scroll Printing. (laughs) They rush a Shana card for the last 17 years. Logos, letterheads, brochures, wow. different organizations. She's done bar, bat mitzvah, wedding invitations. She's done monograms. Rabbi Moskowitz, do you know whose monogram she did? I do. Moshe Moskowitz's monogram. Moshe Moskowitz's monogram at MosheMoskowitz.com. But Alana Lando is a phenomenal <laughs> talent, and she designed our new uh, logo. We're really deeply indebted and grateful to her. Thank you so much for that. People are loving it, which really brings works, us up to our – She works quickly, don't forget. I don't know, you know, if everyone knows. We said, she said, when do you need it? In a month, two months? We're like, how about tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, she does. She's quick. She's really by hand, sketches things out. We decide which one online, puts it together. Really talented. It's a, it's a great new logo. Our friend Matthew's having a heart attack because of the change in logo, but it was time for a change and update, a nice look behind the Bima. And that really brings us to our first topic, which was uh, our summer. We all were spread out all over the universe over the summer. We had a little vacation, took a little break. And I don't know about you, but wherever we traveled, whether it was uh, whether it was the five towns, Teaneck or Passaic or Wyoming, people were like, you, behind the Bima. I love behind the Bima. <laughs> so I was like, you know, do you listen to the Parsha class or Amunashir or you read the articles? They're like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I love Behind the Bima. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if you had similar expense experiences, gentlemen, where you were. What was it like? Many. Lots of love. I was in the five towns for a week and a half this summer. Lots of love in the five towns. In fact, my kids were cracking up every time we went into a restaurant, came into shul. There were comments. They were, is that, is that the rabbi from Behind the Bima? It was really funny. And then there was once I was in a shul. And uh, yeah, I didn't get an aliyah. No one recognized me. I was sitting in the back. It was such a machaya just to be anonymous. And uh, finally, I'm like walking out of show. I'm like, I made it an entire minion. No one coming over. And as I'm walking out the door, 20 guys come over to me. They're like, who's on behind the Bima next? <laughs> I said, oh, That's man. Funny. This is <laughs> basically this whole episode is what the young people would call one big flex. flex one big flex. Exactly. No, you know what? It was fun. For us flex. being recognized for behind the Yeah, Bima. it was fun. But, we had such a great time. I'll tell you why I'm because it has not gone to our heads. First of all, all three of us are very fortunate and very lucky 
and you, the audience, got to hear them for three and a half hours, but we have good Rebbitsons. They keep us very humble, and they remind us what our primary and full-time jobs are, our family, and our responsibilities to the shul, and that behind the bima is a hobby that we enjoy and that we love, but we don't take it too seriously. It doesn't go to our head. But we did meet people who said, where's the swag? Where's the swag that you talked about? So we now have our new logo, and the question is what swag we should produce. So somebody's uh, helping us, and they've suggested hats, polo shirts, car magnets. So we want to welcome those who are listening now in the comments. Please share with us what swag you would like. And one of the people who comments will be a lucky winner. We're going to send you some of that swag in the mail. So would you like to see a Behind the Bima, our new logo? Would you wear it on a hat? Would you wear it on a polo shirt? Would you put a magnet on your car? Or do you listen and that's as far as you're going to go? You have no interest in wearing anything Behind the Bima. Should we be doing any swag or not? I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I love I like it. I would wear you name it, I, I'll put it on. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I was in one community in in, uh, in Chicago, so excited. Someone came over and they said, oh, you're from Boca Raton Synagogue. I said, they said yeah, we watch, we watch the program. I said, oh, I'm so happy. I, you're the, finally the first person that came over to me. I said, behind <laughs> me was the greatest program, right? They said, what? We're, we listen to all of Rabbi Goldberg's classes. <laughs> I don't know what behind the beam is. That's funny. A special That's shout funny. out to Mayor and Hani. Thank you. <laughs> Mayor and Khani. We've got uh, our dear friend Donnie Oppenheimer, Shabbos tote bag. We should make a Shabbos tote bag swag with behind the Bima. Shabbos tote bag. Be cute for a talus bag. Behind talus the Bima bag, talus yeah. bag. That'd be cute. Yeah. I don't know. I think the car magnets. We had a car magnet in our car. I looked at my wife the other day. I said, Why is it on a car? She goes, I don't know. I put it on one day and it's been on for the last two and a half years. Yeah. So try, uh, try, try take it off now. You know what happens with these <laughs> toilet bags? They literally melt in Florida to the yeah. metal. You take the magnet off, you're also taking the entire side of your car off. So. <laughs> Edward Kaplan says matching kippa and tzitzis, talus katan. Interesting, interesting. I have a I like, I like cup, tumbler, That's running cool. shirt. What do you think, a, a cup shirt. or a tumbler or a running shirt? Behind I the like beam of running. In honor of Rabbi Moskowitz and in honor of, maybe Adidas would sponsor it since we had uh, BD Deutsch on and Adidas is now sponsoring her. Team behind the beamer. Team behind the beamer. Keep uh, suggesting your... Uh, We'd love to hear your suggestions. So in the comments, write what you'd like to see behind the beam of swag. And uh, perhaps we'll go with it and send it to one of you. So we appreciate that. Gentlemen, how was your summers? Tell about, talk about, we had goals. The end of last season of behind the beam, we talked about what our summer goals were, what we wanted to accomplish, how we wanted to grow. Let's uh, check in. That's it. We're back. So Rabbi Brody, we'll start with you. Where were you? What did you do this summer? What were your goals? Did you meet them? It, no, I, I did not achieve any of my goals because everything changed. I would say in the last month, my whole world has been flipped upside down. In the last week, I was in Atlanta, Chicago, Denver, New York, New Jersey. None of this was vacation, by the way. These that was were, all in the last week. This was, yeah, that was you know, not even a week. It's in the last five days. Next week, we're going wow. back to New York, going to Maryland. And there's a lot of exciting things. I promise the breaking story will happen right here. Mm. Wow. So you've been traveling for business. 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 Mm. Big tease. That's a big tease, by the way. That is a big tease. Different business than the business of Boca Raton Synagogue and Jewish Federation? It is. Everything is related. Everything comes together. And all we're doing is expanding two things. Achtus and Torah. Do your other current positions, are they aware of this new position? (laughs) Well, I think Rabbi Goldberg just found out. So when, when is that big announcement? First was you, were you and uh, and and Matt? So absolutely. When when is that? When is the big announcement? Tell our listeners what they can expect. I mean, in the next, I would say probably two three weeks. 
Yeah, that, ooh, wow. Yeah, it's coming. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz, I don't think you were you living here when Rabbi Brody called the big press conference. I was. That was my first summer here. He called a press conference with nobody other than himself, where he staged a whole facade yeah. of a press conference. <laughs> he had fake microphones sitting at the beam of Bokertol Synagogue. He got up there like the president Plus, of the United I States. He, I have a big announcement, big prod. And I, who is this guy? Let me tell you, who is this guy you, who throws his own press conference with no press or anyone else? When you say I was the only one there, I think I was actually, I was including the guy filming it. I might have filmed it myself. That was, that was a classic. If anybody wants to know Rabbi Josh Brody, that was the moment. He was transitioning from executive director of BRS to starting a major outreach revolution. And in order to make that announcement, he announced there would be a press conference at BRS. <laughs> then he taped like a dozen microphones to the Bima. None and, of them and had a video guy. Right. What? None of them. They weren't plugged into anything. They were just. Yeah, they were just microphones not plugged in. Had right. a video guy. Made it look like the whole CNN, Fox News, the whole world was there. <laughs> made his big announcement that nobody watched or saw. Yeah. And he held a press conference. Well, apparently you both watched it, so that was it. You, you, you both, and my mom. So. But I'm just <laughs> the bottom line is though, you have big announcement. That means that it was a big summer. You got something done in a big way. Yes. Yes, and it's okay. not just uh, something that's taking place here in Boca. It's it's big. It's taking place. Uh, we have some big partners. Let's just say, it's big, and it's and it's not. You're not giving up something you're currently doing. This complements uh, or expands. Yeah, it's it's again achdus and Torah. There's no two better words. I think that that uh, we could all strive to. Now, when you travel to all those cities, will you be dropping car magnets on cars everywhere? Absolutely. I will be dropping people in the middle of Yenemsville are going to be like, well, where did this car magnet come from? <laughs> yes. We had some more suggestions. Edward Kaplan says the behind the Bima Tichel, behind the Bima lace top shaitel. Just joking. The behind the Bima Tichel. Our good friend, Cindy Schreier has weighed in for the car magnet. Special shout out to the Schreiers. I was in the five towns this summer. Stop, chop and roll. As promised during our global campaign, the Shriers took good care. We had some delicious sushi. I highly recommend it for everybody. So thank you for you know, that. And we'll we'll be getting you your car magnet. You know what would be great is if they could name a sushi roll like the B2B, you know, you know, I was there. I was, it's funny because I was there after you, Rabbi Goldberg, and I was actually waiting for that. I walked into the restaurant. It was oh, like boy, right relax, before closing. I go to order my sushi, and I'm like, where's the Goldberg special? <laughs> so Rabbi Moskowitz, tell us about your summer. Where did you go? What did you do? Did you have goals and did you meet them? Summer was amazing. As I told you, it was uh, really spectacular, very long needed and necessary and, and amazing in ways that I didn't even anticipate. Uh, for us, the summer was about friends, family, and each other. And that was really the kind of uh, <laughs> the theme throughout the whole thing. We saw friends we haven't seen in two years. Really nice just to reconnect with people. A lot of old friends. We saw a lot of family that we haven't seen in a very long time, got together with cousins, got together with relatives that we don't ordinarily have the chance to get together with. So we really made an effort for that. We drove a lot to be able to see people. Um, some people we were not able to see, but we really tried to see everyone that we could. And it was really special to see cousins get together, to see me get together with old friends. And then it was just, you know what, to me, it's about spending time with my children. It really is about disconnecting um, and just enjoying my time with my children. It's about not running out on them all the time. It's being able to sit with them at a meal and just have fun and laugh and play cards on Shabbos together and, and not be burdened by the responsibilities that we have during the year and just to be able to focus totally on them. And I really felt that, thank God, I was afforded the opportunity to do that. I want to thank you for giving me the, the space to be able to do that. And, uh, and it was really great. It was a very special three weeks. That's fantastic. Welcome back. Now you had you a whole not... spreadsheet, right? You had a whole spreadsheet. I did Rabbi. have a spreadsheet. I did have a spreadsheet. We will not at all. Um, we will not uh, 
analyze that you mentioned friends before family in your list of things this summer. I'm sure that was not. Because that's like on the discounts. It's like friends and family discount. Uh, it's never uh, family uh, and friends you. discount. So that's the, why the friends saying. and family rate. Understood. Exactly. Understood. <laughs> Understood. So yeah, I also had a great summer and I thank you because, you know, we're only able to take time off because the other of us uh, takes responsibility. So I'm very grateful to all of you. Um, and I also I had a great summer. It happens to feel like it was a lifetime ago. I was back before Tishabov. So my summer was over before on Shabbos Chazon, before Tisha Bob, I'm not complaining, but it was a long time ago. And we had a great time. So I had goals. We talked about it in our final episode of Behind the Bima uh, before the summer. And my goal was to, the challenge that Rabbi Brody issued to me was to turn the notifications off on the phone oh, yeah. and to delete yeah. social media. So I am very proud to tell you that my notifications are still off on my email and my WhatsApp. The notifications I turned off on my messages, my iMessages, and like two or three days later, I realized I hadn't checked it and I had all these messages. So <laughs> it didn't work because I don't get that many texts. I'm mostly WhatsApp and email. So it wasn't really a, a bad thing to leave the notification on. It's not that frequent. But leaving it off meant I forgot to check it. And that could you know, be a problem if someone was trying to get in touch with me about something important. So uh, the email notifications are still off on my phone and the email and the WhatsApp notifications are off. And the result of it, I have to tell you, was extraordinary, is that you feel like I check those when I want to. I don't feel owned by them. I'm one of those neurotic people who has to clear notifications. If I have a little bubble with a number in it, I have heart palpitations. We talked about there are people whose email says like 620,422. I can't deal with that. I can't even deal with that when I see it on someone else's phone, let alone my own. So I don't know what that neurosis comes from, but needing to clear, needing to clear uh, notifications. So now I look at my phone and there's, there's no notifications. There's no one here. Let's see. You can look, you look in the bottom right there. Notifications. I promise you it's not because there's no messages. I don't know. I'll (laughs) open it. Yeah. There's, if you open it, you'll see these messages, but if you look at it, your heart doesn't like skip that beat. Like I need to clear it. I need to read it. I need to see it. So when I'm ready, I open it. Now, so the good part was I really rediscovered what it meant to be a human being disconnected. A human being who owns technology is not owned by technology. I went for hour and a half, two hour walks this summer by myself, no phone, no notifications. I immersed myself davening. I left the phone at home. I didn't bring it with me to the shul that I went to. So it wasn't even buzzing or beeping. I didn't, wasn't even tempted in my pocket. I will say the downside of all this after Rabbi Brody, the person who was most encouraging me to learn to disconnect and rediscover what it means to own technology and not be owned by it was my wife. The problem was that I also didn't notice when she was trying to get in touch with me <laughs> because when your notifications are off or you leave your phone intentionally so that you can go and spend time and be out. So uh, I wasn't able to, to, to take that, but we, we figured out a system for that. But yeah. I'll tell you that I am very proud. I created a spreadsheet, still going strong. I'm on line number... Let's see, today's Wednesday, 66 of the spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet, I recorded um, how much sleep I was getting every night, exactly how much sleep I got. The spreadsheet, let me see the spreadsheet here. The spreadsheet records how much sleep I got. It records whether I took a walk and how long did exercise. The last time I eat at night, because for me, it's one of my goals to finish eating at a normal time and not snack late at night. I got notifications, social media, leaving the shul at home. And uh, a couple other ones that I have on there. So the the social media, Facebook, Twitter, deleted from my phone. And uh, if I want to post something, I do it when my laptop's open. It's part of my work life, not my private life, not mindlessly just scrolling or posting or checking the notifications on a post that you put up. And these things are game changers. And I hope to be able to keep it going. That's great. Listen, I love the fact that you articulated goals. It's something we always talk about, certainly in Elul. 
as we're going to be preaching this to our congregation about making small achievable goals and 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 marking them and marking your success and celebrating those successes i think it's a great to model that for the community now i want to take our listeners behind the beam a little bit because you referenced that your notifications were off and you were inaccessible and there was a time during the summer that i needed to access you i needed to get in touch with you yeah this and uh, it took it took me a little bit of time to get in touch with you but i was able to and you actually flew back to Boca. And I'm curious if, if you'd be interested in discussing that for our, our viewership as to the thought process. A rabbi goes on vacation, right? Something happens in the community. We had a, a devastating loss in our community this summer, someone very beloved to many of us. And, uh, and you chose to interrupt your vacation and to come back and to be a part of the community. Can you explain to our viewers why you felt it was so important to come back, to interrupt your sure. vacation, to come back, to be part of the community. And um, and was that ever a doubt for you, right? In other words, a right. rabbi's on a vacation, he's checked out, he's taking time for himself, something happens to the community. What goes into that calculation? Sure. Thank you for bringing that up. And we, we didn't even plan, like most behind the beam of conversations, we didn't plan this one. <laughs> First of all, that is a riot. That's evidence that what I'm telling you is true about disconnecting. One of the things I was very proud about, and I'm still trying to do is, on Motzei Shabbos, not run back to my phone, even after Havdalah. Now, again, it was easier to do on vacation. You know, when you're not on vacation, you do need to see somewhat what's going on, or it could be a Shaila question that comes from the mikvah, or somebody in real time needs to be able to get a hold of you. But I intentionally, like when hours, when Shabbos was over, I just didn't get my phone. I didn't feel the need to check what was going on. So that Motzei Shabbos, when our dear beloved friend passed away, I know you were trying to get a hold of me. And ultimately, one of my kids came over and they're like, why is there my Moskowitz? I missed like 10 calls from my Moskowitz on my phone, one of my kids, which is such a beautiful thing that you had their numbers. Um, so we were able to get a hold that way. So we lost a dear, dear friend, um, Chaim Diamond, Allah Shalom, really a, a special, special person with a big heart, very real, very authentic Jew, a good friend, a um, educator who had an impact on hundreds, thousands of students in our community, a young man, a really young guy, a couple of years older than I am. And uh, he had been sick and he'd been sick for years on and off and he had not been doing great, but he was healthy and well and expecting to go on vacation. And on a Shabbos, just very suddenly playing a game with his family, he uh, got up from the couch that he didn't feel well, took a couple steps and that was it. And it was horrifically tragic. You, you know better than I do. You were here in the community. I was away. But I, I really believe that and I have to be careful here because I don't want to insult anybody. You know, every loss is a tragic loss. Every loss. We have somebody who's deep into their 90s, a Holocaust survivor, very beloved in our community, is in hospice right now. And everyone's braced and it'll be an enormous, devastating loss for all of us when, when it will happen. Please, God, not for a long time still. Every loss. You could be 110 years old. It's a big loss. Not to minimize, not to compare, not to contrast loss. But there are, there are objective tragedies. There are young people leaving a young family who die suddenly out of nowhere. And there are moments that it's clear the community's reeling. The community's in pain. The community's in suffering. And, and you have to be with the community. So I, I'll say this very clearly. And again, we didn't plan this conversation. I did not fly back for the community. I flew back for me. The thought that I'd be away from the community when the community was going through that tragedy, I, I wanted to be with Michelle and be with the children and, and be with my family. This community is my family. You don't miss, you're not apart from your family even when you're on vacation if your family's going through a tragedy. So how do you decide what age is the tragedy, what stage of life, what level of illness? It's complicated. I agree, it's, it's totally complicated. Um, but I think there are, there are those moments where you can see clearly is a tragedy. I once flew to Israel to lead a mission from our shul and I landed in Israel and I turned my phone on and I found out that Margot Allswing, the colonel of Racha, passed away. Also, she was 
40 years old, I believe. I think she was 40. Oh, yeah. And I didn't leave the airport. I stayed. I got the next flight out. I flew right back. I didn't have, it wasn't clear. It wasn't, it wasn't like sacrifice or heroic or flex. It was very clear. The community is experiencing something as a community, as a family. You've got to be there. Not because Rabbi Moskowitz, you're not capable and competent. I trust you with my life. And please God, in 120 years, you'll do my funeral. Uh, you can do a funeral better than I can, better than almost anybody can. It's not a matter of trusting the people who were here. And you spoke at Chaim's funeral. You spoke so beautifully. It would have been incomplete without you speaking. But it's it's what it means to be part of a community, part of a family, and to not be able to imagine not being there and missing it. You know, it's funny because when you when when you were coming back, and I guess word got out in the community that you were coming back, someone said to me, they said, I can't believe Rabbi Goldberg is interrupting his vacation to come back. And until that person said something, I didn't even think, I assumed you would come back. I never had the assumption that you wouldn't come back because of that exact reason. I mean, when when Brian Galbit, Allah Shalom, uh, passed away a few years ago, so I was also away at the time. And it was, it was never even, a, like, right. as you said, it was crystal clear that I was coming back. How could you not be with your family at such a time and to, to mourn together and to be together? And, you know, it wasn't even a, a hava mean. It wasn't even a thought process. It was so crystal right. clear, as you said. And I was just struck that for someone in the community, they were, they were surprised by this. It's surprised by it. Of course, he's coming back. You know, it's, it's a brother. You know, you're, you can't miss Absolutely. out on that stuff. Absolutely. It was a similar thing. You know, it's complicated when rabbis are on vacation. And we could talk more about this, but I want to bring on our special guest, our extraordinary heroic guest momentarily. When rabbis are on vacation, what do they come back on for? Weddings, funerals, shiva calls, shilas. What do they not? How do you draw those lines? Where are those boundaries? How do you make those decisions? It's very complicated. It's increasingly complicated or it's compounded when you're local. When you're local, then you're really making a decision who you're coming on for and who you're not coming back on for. If you're distance, if you're far away, it really takes extraordinary circumstances to come in. And for me, it didn't even feel like an interruption to my vacation. Right? I flew in on Sunday morning and I left um, on Monday morning. And, you know, it was it was fine. It was what it was. And it's what needed to be done or what I needed to do. So it is an interesting discussion. And I know it's one that people look at, some, some of the magnifying glass. Um, but it's complicated. It's hard to figure that out sometimes. Rabbi Brody, what were you thinking? I was just fortunate to be in Israel. I mean, again, I, was, I obviously wasn't coming back, but because Chaim was buried there and it was just, uh, you know, I was there for another, another. I was there for a wedding, ended up going to two weddings, but unfortunately two funerals from, from our community. So, it, you know, it's, it was nice to be able to participate, even though. Yeah, having you there and officiating there was an extension for us, of us, and that was uh, that was big too. That was big too. All right, Cindy Schreier has weighed in. Come back, Rabbi Moskowitz, ask for Avi. Rabbi Brody, you come also. So <laughs> stop, chop, and roll. There are There is sushi waiting for you. See, mine was Lashma, though, because I went in, no one knew who I was, and That's I true. still loved the sushi. That's true. There you go. There you go. We have some more swag <laughs> suggestions. A reflector for safety to wear when walking at night, Sarah Markowitz. Do they have vegetarian rolls for you? They have it's vegan rolls for you. Yeah, <laughs> Just don't go next door to the Chinese place. Does everybody know how do you know if somebody's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Tell you. <laughs> I love that joke. That's my favorite. <laughs> All right, without any further ado, what, what are you excited about hosting Rabbi Yosef Mendelovich? Um, when did you first hear of him? What do you know about him? I've heard about him. I have his book. I love his book. I know we're going to talk a little bit about the term hero. I know it's one of your questions that you have, but he's a hero to mine of, of mine, um, having met him and read his book and learned about him. And I think that there is something that he has that our generation desperately needs, and that's what I'm looking to glean from him. All right, so let's let's bring him on. Natan Sharansky may be the most famous refusenik, but his story, I mean, is is really really amazing. It's worth everybody to read, to learn about, to hear. So. 
Without any further ado, it's a great honor to be able to welcome Rabbi Yosef Mendelovich. What a great honor and a privilege it is to be welcomed by a true hero of the Jewish people, Rabbi Yosef Mendelevich. Rabbi Mendelevich, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for letting me call you a hero. I know it's one of your pet peeves to not be referred to as a hero of the Jewish people, but when our audience hears or remembers your life story and what you've been through and the incredible uh, perseverance and faith that you've had, I know that they will agree with me that you are a hero. So welcome. Thank you for being with us. And why is it that you don't like to being referred to as a hero? Um, I, I never uh, saw this concept of being hero in uh, Torah. Torah never mentioned somebody as a hero. You can be a novi, a tzaddik, but what, what's, what means hero? No such thing. Well, we'll decide that, and, and, and we've decided so far that you are a hero. So, Ramindalovich, thank you for giving us your time. Thank you for being with us. It's really an honor to spend some time with you. You've been to our community. You've spoken in our in our schools. And your story is so, so inspiring. There are people who um, are going through their own difficult times. And in many ways, they, they're nothing compared to what you, you went through. And they're struggling with their amuna, with their faith. How is it 11 years, a uh, Russian refusenik, a prisoner of Zion, separated from your family, so unfairly uh, treated and tortured, and yet you maintained your faith in Hashem, you maintained your adherence in indescribable circumstances to keeping Shabbos and kosher. Where did that come from? What was the source of that of that courage? I think uh, that the answer is uh, very simple. I am a Jew, and every Jew is able and willing to do it. His neshama, his soul, is willing to be a good Jew. Sometimes there are kind of uh, obstacles that uh, prevent him from doing that. But his neshama uh, uh, is willing to do that. You know, so the miracle is that uh, I, how to say, uh, uh, stop being a slave of uh, my uh, smaller uh, human beings' willings, uh, um, and I, I got open to the only will of the God. Uh, I, I, let me tell you something. The miracle is that I discovered myself being a Jew for having uh, this kind of uh, Soviet education that uh, uh, declined the very concept of the God. Uh, it was not that easy. And I believe that a miracle happened with me that I discovered it by myself. Uh, I, I believe that everybody can do it, but uh, the Rebona Shalom helped me to find myself being a Jew, having a Jewish soul, and being connected to the good, so to the God. Uh, so when I'm speaking in these concepts, everything is miracle. Not necessarily could happen. And uh, I'm sorry to admit that uh, the majority of my peers never experienced something like that. People that got this kind of Soviet education, brainwashed, nothing happened with them. So uh, indeed, what happened with me I can't explain why it happened with me. But becoming a believer Jew, discovering the truth, how could I behave differently? You know, uh, perhaps you heard the stories that two Bokharim in the 30s managed to escape uh, the Soviets, they arrived to America and met uh, Moshe Feinstein. 
that he himself was uh, from Soviet Union. He, you know, he escaped. Oh, for, he, he was uh, uh, permitted to leave uh, Russia uh, to go to America in, in the 30s. But some boys, Jewish boys that escaped and uh, went through all kinds, as you mentioned, tortures and experiences and still remained Jewish. So Moshe Feinstein asked him, how you managed to do that? And they answered him, Rebbe, there was a other way to do it. It is my answer, you know. So when I became a Jew, there was no other way to do it. You know. What's the question? But even as a Jew, even as a Jew, Mendelevich, you know, there would have been uh, understandable leniencies to rely on given your circumstances, to not wear a yarmulke, for example, or to not keep Shabbos or kosher. You were incarcerated, you were imprisoned, you were tortured uh, by, by obviously by the Soviets, by the Russians, unjustly, immorally, and you would have had much to rely upon. And yet you insisted as a proud Jew that you were going to persevere, even not relying on the leniencies that you could have. So, for example, how many hunger strikes did you go on? What did you weigh as a result of those hunger strikes? Uh... I never counted. I have maybe to um, figure out uh, the total of hunger strikes. I believe it comes to 100 days, not more than that. Sometimes it would be a, a week, sometimes 10 days, two weeks. The biggest one was uh, two months. But again, it was not a real experience. And uh, I'll try to expl explain you something again. For um, do you, the moment you discover, as you told, that you belong to this beautiful nation, on this beautiful emune, you cannot, you have no way out. You cannot betray yourself. Imagine the terrible thought that I may be somebody else than I am now. It's terrible, you know. I discovered myself. I discovered the values of my life, what really means for me. And to give up means to kill myself, to stop being myself. It's terrible. You know? It's better to die, but uh, up the last moment remain myself. I, mm. I, I believe everybody understands that. You know? Maybe sometimes people uh, are not able to formulate it that strictly who I am. But the moment you can formulate and say, you, I am a Jew, I belong to my nation. I belong to the Torah. I, it is me. You can be somebody else. It was something, mm. you know, like, again, like kill yourself. There would be no meaning in my life. So if I could just jump in and ask a follow-up question to that, which is, and of course, I've read your book and, and your, so much of your life is, is so inspiring for so many of us. But I think if we if we look to the youth of our generation and even honestly, people of our generation, so many of them struggle with exactly what you just articulated, what came so naturally to you, that sense of Jewish pride, that sense of finding yourself, that commitment, that devotion, that giving yourself up to something larger than yourself is exactly what so many of our children struggle with in terms of them finding their own pathway in Judaism. So if you were talking to an audience of, let's say, high school students or college age students, what would you tell them about your experiences to inspire them, right? They who've grown up with so many luxuries and so many um, 
you know, uh, abilities that you never were afforded, Jewish education, day school education, and they're struggling with exactly what you were able to find, how would you help them along to find that sense of Jewish pride, that sense of commitment, that sense of, of devotion? It's uh, really a kashe. It's a very hard question you ask, you know. Uh, but I'm going, uh, I'm uh, doing the easiest way. I simply tell stories and help uh, people to think about that and to make their own decisions. To bring an example, as a human being, a regular human being, I believe, can do it. And it's a challenge. If somebody like me can do it, why I couldn't do it? But to come, you know, to a, a deepest, uh, more profound explanation, I don't think I am able. It's up so, to you. You are educators. You have degrees in education. I ha I can just set a model of behavior, and I believe that at least in uh, my experience, at my experience, it uh, makes it educational task. People think, and you will never admit. No, I, I when when you listen to my stories, people even if they would admit that. No, I can do, but it's, it still remains in you. And it is, in, at the moment, you know, my quality is to bring it as vital with it as possible, that the people could uh, believe and trust that it is true. And when you create the image of somebody that can do it, it remains with you. And it's my way to influence people. Again, it's a, it's a very profound answer. In other words, sometimes you don't have to put into words to inspire, but by example, dugma ishit. And, and the truth is, that is, I know that was my experience too. Your incredible memoir, your personal book, really recommended to everybody, Unbroken Spirit, a heroic story of faith, courage, and survival. And the stories, what they do is they awaken within us, like you're saying, the own voice of courage to overcome the obstacles that we face, which pale in comparison to what you endured, but to know that there's somebody who's alive and we're talking to and we're listening to, and this is not just mythical, it's not just uh, being written as uh, somebody's uh, pretend book, it's a real, real story. So let's get back to the story if we can, Rabindra Lovitch, if you can share some with us. So one of those hunger strikes was to get a sitter, right? Why would you risk your life and to take a hunger strike to get a sitter? Could you tell us that story? Uh, it's quite a story to tell. Um, I'll tell you the story in short and uh, then make some uh, uh, definitions. Okay? Um, to begin with, uh, in spite of all, uh, you know, uh, searches and uh, surveillance, Prisoners can get illegally goods. In my case, the biggest good was to get illegally for money and uh, use uh, the guards, the supervisors to smuggle inside some Jewish story. So I had them. And then somebody maybe informed the authorities of the prison that they have some something illegal and it was confiscated. Then I had a moral problem. Uh, I felt that I can give up simply so, you know. They're taking your books, your story. You can sit back and not protest. 
And then uh, something interesting happened. I felt that I, I know that I have to protest, but I feel that I'm exhausted. It was almost uh, 10 years being in prison in under all kind of uh, conditions I went through, I felt that I can do it anymore. Then I had a friend, not a Jewish one, an Ukrainian one, an Ukrainian from the people that uh, that time fought for the independence of their state, of their country. His name is Yus, it's uh, passed away was older than me, Zinovi Krasivsky. I told him, Zinovi, I know that I have to do something, but I cannot. And then he told me something very important. Yosef, you can do it and you will do it. You are a strong man and I will support you. So how important it is to have next to you somebody that can tell it to you, you know? I, I'm sorry that it was an Ukrainian man, my friend. It would be better somebody a rabbi, but you know, it's a Russian prison. You can, you don't select whom to have. And it's a privilege, it was my privilege to have this man, a real man, a strong man. Um, and um, he gave me the solution. Yes, after meeting him and talking to him, I told yes. Certainly I will do it, do, do that. And then I asked myself another question. Why the Ribonish Loilam would permit to take away my foreign? Isn't, isn't he interested me to have them? So it's like a punishment. I thought that the, the God, the Ribonish Loilam, is punishing me. Why? And then I start thinking, okay, you know, I try to do my best, but who knows? Sometimes, you know, you are trying your best, but you, you are a human being. So maybe I, I made some mistakes, some violation. And then uh, when I became a, about Chuba, I was already 20 years old. So also we say that, uh, you know, uh, 20 years is like to start your life for uh, the people that were on the Hesa Meraglim by 20 years old, but they permitted to enter. Who was 20 years old, then he has the, the uh, uh, obligation. And before that, nothing. Anyway, I felt that uh, uh, it is an experience, a test. The God is testing me whether I am really true to his commandments and whether I am really ready to pay to be to be a strong Jew. It's a payment. So now I and you know the only weapon we had there in the prison, hunger strike. A real hunger strike means that you are to declare that you are ready and you are going to die for something very special. Um, and I was ready to die for that. Just think, you know, to die for having uh, Jewish books in the prison, in the Soviet prison. For then, if I would achieve it, it would mean an achievement for other Jews. The moment you break the rule and they have to give you up and give this forum, it means that other Jews can you can uh, demand. 
maybe they would have still have a kind of an, an effort, but it, it's like to say that uh, Avram Avinu began as a Gilui Arayot. He he all all the the way. So I had to call the way to have a uh, Russian tour. And then I I thought that I was aware that uh, the cultural movement already started in Soviet Russia, specifically among the Rapuznins in Moscow, Leningrad. It was the end of the 70s, the beginning of the 80s. So I I I have to give them an example that yeah, we have to fight. Nothing comes easy. And uh, I am example that I am uh, uh, somehow uh, sacrificed my life for something that is much more stable. Our toilet, our aesthetic. So it was a case. And uh, when I uh, finally declared the youngest flag, it had two parts of it. Panim Beachot. Panim Vapechut means towards the Goyim, it was a hunger strike, a protest, a demand. For me, it was a fast. That I would say, excuse me if I was not uh, good enough and I didn't make made the mission you appointed me to do in a proper way. So I am ready to get the punishment. So, you know, we uh, make the difference between mysterious nefesh and mysterious nishome. Mysterious nefesh means you sacrifice your body. Mysterious nishome, nishome comes in much more, uh, much more dangerous. Like uh, uh, Eliezer, Pinchas uh, Ben Eliezer. He didn't know, maybe he will be blotted out from Olam Haba. In my case, there was no a danger, you know. It's like mysterious nefesh, for obvious reasons. The one Shalom uh, loves people that are going to die for his sacred Torah. So I don't know more about it. And then this kind of decision helped me a lot. For um, uh, I, I declared the hunger strike, certainly, and the head of the prison told me that uh, it's a violation of their rules, that I am getting my food, uh, and I am a slave, and I have to go to every day to the factory to work, and if not eating, I will not have enough strength to work. I will violate their regime. And they will punish me for refusing to work. And then for, few, for refusing to eat, for refusing uh, to eat, I am obliged to eat. If I don't eat, it's a, another violation. So I made the decision that I will continue to work until I, you know, will <laughs> crash down. Uh, and then they sent, I mean, KGB or... Uh, the authority of the prison sent me good friends. All of a sudden, I discovered that I have good friends. They told me, would say to me, Yosef, you know, don't be don't be stupid, you know. What you are, uh, uh, what will happen if you will eat another piece of uh, bread secretly, you know? Support your health. You have to be uh, healthy. So maybe I could uh, uh, be got seduced. You know, really, you know, after you don't eat uh, a week or two weeks, three weeks, you know, a piece of bread wouldn't uh, harm you. But it was my fast. I fasted to Rebunashil Oilem. Never I tested for the Goyim. It was for them just to say it because of them. 
the real reason of my pre, of my hunger strike was to purify myself before before the rebellion uh, event. So it is how I got wouldn't be seduced. And after three weeks of a hunger strike and working in a factory, I was checked medically, and they admitted that really I'm fasting. I don't know how you know having a very um, how to say not enough uh, medically equipped this this medical place. Still, they checked me and they told, "Oh, you are really ha having a hunger strike." So they put me in a punishment room. For they believed for three three weeks it was an experience to seduce me, to break, to find out that I am cheating. The moment they found that uh, I am not uh, playing anything, that I am going straight. So now you deserve to be <laughs> in a punishment room. It's a long uh, my say. I will not uh, take your time. I'll Please deal, keep uh, going. Yeah, I'll just uh, tell you a small story. After 40 days of my hunger strike, I got a permission to write a letter to my two sisters in Aristos Royal, and I wrote them telling, I feel myself like a Moshe Rabbeinu on Ar Sinai. Means 40 days. Also, Moshe Rabbeinu, I, I did drink water for years, you know. If you don't drink water, you will pass away, away for, a, for a week. It's now, after a week, you don't drink, you, you die. So I declared openly, not drinking something except for water. For instance, that the moment the organism starts uh, consuming itself, it even does accept water. You have to compass you to drink the water. So I compass myself to drink. It was formally, it, it was declared, so I found myself as Moshe Rabbeinu, but much important that the number of 40 days was the feeling. I sat there in, on the board in a punishment room like this, and I told, how true is it, you know? I am fighting to get Torah for my nation, like Moshe Rabbeinu. And I felt myself, you know, uh, I'm sane man. I went all the exams by a psychiatrist, I'm sane. But I felt that time that I'm very close to the angels. And then I told to myself, every day we are rushing and doing and making all kinds of efforts. But now I feel myself that good. I don't do anything, you know, just sitting back and doing something for my nation. I don't, I don't need to go somewhere, don't uh, to call to somebody. I'm quiet. The moment you are doing the real thing, you are not bothered. You enjoy, I enjoyed uh, my status, understand that? So the story, it's longer than that, but uh, I, I believe uh, gentlemen, rabbis, you read my book, so you know it. We did. Share with our, share with our audience though, how did it end? How, how many days did you have to fast and why did they give in? They gave you back the sitter, the svarim. Um, again, this uh, specific uh, Ukrainian uh, man, uh, um, one moment, uh, um, somebody is knocking at the door. I have to open. One moment. No problem. No problem. 
You know, it's amazing. Young people, kids today will say, I'm starving. What's for dinner? Right, I'm starving. Right. They don't know what the word starving is. No, but even that we, sense of Masiris Nefesh of, of sacrificing something of your own for a cause that's a little bit bigger than yourself. That's right. That's also foreign to many Masiris of us. Masiris Nefesh versus Masiris Neshama. But yeah, we, we, we dilute words. They don't have meaning when we say I'm starving because somebody didn't eat in three hours. They didn't have their sushi platter, their charcuterie board, their all you kitty buffet. And, you know, what, what are we willing to give up? And what a story. What a story. Amazing. So, um, so Rav Yosef, tell us. So, yes. So. Yeah, he told me, this man, that um, after 27 years of imprisonment, he had to be released to exile. Exile. Somewhere far away. You know, Russia has a common border with the United States there in the north. So somebody has to spend all their life. But he told me that his wife will come to see him. And on his way, on her way back, she will uh, go through Moscow. And she will meet refuseniks. It was 1980. There was a lot of... And she will pass the knowledge, the information of me having uh, this hunger strike, this fast. And for what reason? So I believe they will do it. They will start uh, making noise and they will pass uh, the information to uh, America. And it happened. It took uh, some 56 days until uh, the head of, uh, uh, of the prison entered uh, my punishment room. He was very angry and he told me, what, you continue to fight against the Soviet Union? So I understood it worked. The scheme worked, you know. Imagine from <laughs> far north to Moscow, from Moscow to United States and back to me. So he told me, uh, uh, what would you, what uh, would be your demands? He told me, see, uh, some of your books we sent to translation to Moscow, we can't return you uh, right away. But we have some books close at hand we can give you. And um, I am sorry to admit I compromised. You know, I thought, okay, you know, the main uh, achievement is that they uh, uh, are ready to uh, give up. Now, the numbers of the books, you know, I have to save, save my, uh, my health, my body. I have to go to Israel. I have to serve in the Israel army. I have to marry. I have to be healthy. So that's much enough, you know. As we say, uh, something good. Uh, has a biggest enemy, better. So right. I was enough clever not to demand everything. It's enough, you know. He gave me a Siddur and a Chumash and, and Hebrew textbook. It's achievement. It's a, it's a victory. So how, it, many day, uh, how many days was that? 56 of, days. Right? 56 days. Two months. Two months. Uh, you know, um, later on I saw in a medical journal that it's being recommended the people that have kind of uh, cancer to have a, a fast for 56 days. So, <laughs> you know, when I uh, was uh, really uh, released after that, uh, I was uh, checked medically and I was found healthy. Hmm. Amazing. Amazing. One moment, again, I will finish. It's a very interesting story. I will finish. <laughs> Wow, that's a big that's a big weight loss. Fifty six days. Fifty six days. That's it's a compromise. Uh, even that compromise is so even that compromise is so lishma. 
that he did it because he wanted to move to Israel and be married. Okay, yes. Yeah. What what happened? Matter of fact, the whole group of uh, hijackers from Leningrad were released in 1979. So I stayed two years more without any explanation. Uh, without any explanation why specifically they wouldn't release me. They even released the pilot, Mr. Dimshitz, yeah? but not me. One of uh, the prisoners of Cohen told me, you know why, why the reason? For you are religious. Stop being religious, they will immediately uh, release you. <laughs> you know, I, I laughed at it. Uh, I don't believe it was a real reason. Anyway, what happened, I... I, I uh, I am sorry to admit, you know, the majority is released, 99%. Mendelevich stayed in prison. Forget about him. I, I got forgotten. If not this hunger strike that Ribonishal Oilam played in my hand, again, to make other people remember that there is one else that's still in the prison. Mm. And then I, I, got, I got released from the prison in two months. Wow. All part of all part of his master plan. You you said maybe because you were religious, so give up the religion. So maybe you, there's so many stories, and and again we encourage people to to get the book and they could see them for themselves. But what was the story of of the yamaka, the kippah? You know, today in America there's a rise of anti-Semitism, and there are people who are increasingly taking off their kippah, taking off their yamaka. They're afraid to wear their yamaka. They don't want to be viewed as a Jew. And and you I have a big yarmulke, but yeah, I yeah. Have a bigger hat, so you don't. See it. <laughs> and you you refused to take off your yarmulke even to be able to meet your father. Your father who had come from Latvia to Siberia, tell us that story. Why? Why not take off your yarmulke? Why not take off the kippa to be able to have the privilege to meet your father? You again? know, uh, again, I don't think that um, uh, you can compare uh, my situation there in uh, in a in a prison with uh, the situation of people in, uh, in America, even in Israel. For I was there and I felt myself, I am on a mission. I represent here my nation. And our nation is a strong and proud nation. It never compromise on our principles. So uh, I, I was aware that the Yarmulke is uh, not the Raisa. Not even the Rabbonin. Midas Hasidut. But uh, we started, and I taught uh, another uh, Jewish boy, Rabbi, became Snava Rabbi Shimon Grilius, that we have to show everybody that we are Jewish. We don't compromise. So now, the moment the Goyim understood that it is a Jewish symbol, if you took it away, it means you compromise, you give up your symbols. And we, we know that if somebody is going to humiliate your nation, your religion, you have to die for that. And I was, I was ready to die for that, for I understood the moment I compromise, I'm breaking everything. Whatever I did before is broken. It means that uh, I cannot live up my principles, even a small one. And then I know that if you start giving up something small, finally you will give up everything. So, in fact, um, uh, fighting for my Yarmulka, I uh, fought for my Amune, everything. You know, for 
not only in the eyes of uh, the Goyim. They will feel that I'm a weak man and I cannot live my, my principles for myself, you know. If I'm weak, if I give up something, and there's a lot of experience in your life. All the time you are, have another challenges, and again, maybe to give up this and give up that, finally, you'll be stripped down without anything. So you have to keep this small mitzvah to prevent you from stepping back. It means I don't step back in anything. As we, as we say, kalaki hamura. There is no, no difference between our, our misses. Everything is important. If you start giving up something small, you will fi finally, I'm, I'm sorry to admit, and it is, you know, a common experience. Finally, finally you will give uh, everything. So, and then, of course, I did know that I uh, serve a symbol. Uh, it started, uh, I mentioned now, uh, the hunger strike was in the 80s. We had already the uh, movement in Soviet Russia. But I started the, the fight for Yarmulke. It was the beginning of the 70s. And I felt that doing it, I, I helped my friends in Moscow and Leningrad to build their approach to our money, to know that we don't compromise. And Baruch Hashem, it was not that, uh, you know, people say experience is torture. When you love something, it's like, you know, you enjoy it. As uh, let me finish soon for I have to go to my Minche, another story, not the whole story about keeping Shabbos. When uh, finally uh, they discovered that I'm keeping Shabbos and uh, not uh, working in a factory. So it means I pretended myself going on Shabbos to their enterprise. It's a normal routine that you can read even God forbid, in Auschwitz, you know. In the morning, all the slaves get up, Umschlagplatz, they count you, send to the to the enterprise. They check you how you work, whatever, in the evening, go back, sleep, in the morning again. It's, a, it's routine, it's a procedure. So if you declare that you don't work on Shabbos, they will kill you. But I am a clever Jew, you know. I am not going to sacrifice myself for nothing. If I can uh, go it around, so I'll do it. So I figured out in the Zana story how to go it around. It means to go to the enterprise and to pretend myself that I'm working there. And uh, cheating and said, you know, Klugi Yudin, Aid Marsen Gitzahanaitse, Aid Gitzahanaitse. You know, that is the story, the whole story. So finally, after several years, they discovered that I don't work and come to uh, uh, compulse me, uh, telling me that if you don't go now to work, you'll, you'll, I will put you under the ground and you'll die there. Means uh, what? Pikuch nefesh, right? So I thought to myself, one moment, now it is not really pikuch nefesh. If you would really put me under the ground and I will feel that I'm going to die, now I have uh, the permission to give up, but that father is just yelling at me. So I told him, you know, it was major, major of KGB. I told, don't yell at me. I am not afraid of you. You know, I have my commander. He doesn't permit me to go to work. So uh, took him uh, 
to the prison in, inside, uh, as you know, inside the concentration camps, they have a special prison for violators. So I was taken out of uh, the enterprise, escorted by Russian soldiers, bringing me to a punishment room of the prison. And I told myself, I told Ribbon Shalom, I thank you for the privilege to be punished for keeping your mitzvah. I told, who knows, maybe there is nobody else except of me in the whole world that being told violate Shabbos and I refuse. For nowadays, nobody is compulsed to violate Shabbos and, uh, unless he is not making it by his own will. But nobody can compulse him. At least not uh, by Pikuach Nefer, but by, by, by uh, um, uh, uh, the, the, the telling you that you, you can die for that. Anyway, uh, it is what I'm telling you. When you make a mitzvah and you know that you are doing it in a proper way, it's the biggest joy that you can uh, have in your life. For if you have, you go into a restaurant and you eat something, and I, if you even have a healthy stomach, that's okay. But after your stomach digests the food, nothing, nothing left. So, hey, I making this mitzvah, I built something eternal for a life. And I, I, I did know that even that time I did know that the God loves especially people that are going through experiences keeping in Shabbos. So certainly I, I, I understood that. It is, it is a big benefit that I'm being punished, you know. That imagine they would never discover that I'm, uh, 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 that I'm not working with Shabbos and would never punish me. What, what uh, you know, a bonus in my life or merit in my life I would lose, you know. Baruch Hashem, they discovered it. They punished me for that. And now not that else that I can go around and tell the stories. But simply, I know that it was something good. I said, thank you for the privilege. You, you granted me to be punished. You know, sometimes, you know, everything is permitted. Everything is free in America, in Israel, you know. <laughs> How to get the chance to be punished for doing some, some, some mitzvah. Almost no, no, no chance. So it was my privilege to be in prison and to go through experiences. Now, gentlemen, I, I have to run to my mincha. Appreciate you asking questions. Prepare more good questions for next time. I'm ready to cooperate. And All right. Sorry. We, we want to thank you. No, the stories are amazing. amazing. Of, uh, we, have, we have so many more. In part two, you'll share with us how you and Natan Sharansky communicated while in prison and uh, the stories of when you were released and uh, how you built your life now in Israel and what you're doing. So come full circle with Mendelevich. You may not consider yourself a hero, but I'm confident that everybody who just listened and everyone certainly who reads your book will disagree with you and see it, uh, and even the name of your book, A Heroic Story of Faith, Courage, and Survival. It was not, not my name, the, <laughs> sure. the English publisher. It will be selling better if it has this name. For I'm my sure. original name is uh, Operation Wedding. Nobody would understand what does it mean or what kind of wedding. So we shall call it uh, Unbroken Spirit. Okay, the, you know. The publisher had a good name. I am soft man. I compromise. Hashem, <laughs> yeah. Clearly very soft. Hashem should grant you good health and the happiness, nachat, from your family. Only the best of everything. And we thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to having you back to continue to hear these stories. And we thank you that everybody listening of all ages undoubtedly will look at their own lives and not take for granted the ability to eat 
every day for 56 days and the ability to practice and keep Shabbos freely and to have their sitter and, in and their they hand will or envy, on their phone. envy me. They will envy not having this kind of experiences. <laughs> I don't think so, but we'll envy your we'll envy the merit that you have. So thank you so much for spending time. Thank you for sharing with us, and we look forward to continuing. Wow. That's great stuff. Amazing. Really amazing. Such a hero. Such an amazing person. There's a lot to unpack, a lot to uh, think about there. You meet people. They're not part of ancient history, these heroic stories. You read about them in the history book. People in Russian gulag, 11 years, and going on uh, fast protests for 56 days, 200 days total. And you think that these things are, are like part of history. There must be hundreds of years ago. There's no one alive like that. And there's a simple Jew. If you were on a bus and you were shalim with him, you'd look over, you'd see there's a nice Jew with a nice beard, and you wouldn't realize there's a hero. There's someone who's willing to die to wear a yarmulke, die to have a sitter. And we have a sitter easily. You go to the bookcase to get a sitter. You turn your phone on, you have a sitter. How many sidurim do we have in our house that we don't even know what to do with them, where to put them? They're falling out of everywhere. So there are Jews like that. There are heroes alive. And it was interesting what he said at the very beginning, which is he's not sure how to speak to young people to inspire them to find their Jewish soul, the Jewish spark. All he could do is tell his story and hope that it reminds them of the Jewish soul, the Jewish spark that's deep inside them. So uh, which part really jumped out? Which, which lasted the most, meant the most for you? Well, first of all, obviously, you know, we've spoken about in the past how that's why biographies and autobiographies are so powerful because it's not just preaching, it's telling a personal story. And when people see that someone else overcame a challenge or someone else was able to accomplish something, so they say, oh, I could... That could be me too. So um, I agree with him, obviously, 100%. Um, to me, if I had to identify one thing that struck me, it was the joy. He kept on referencing the joy, right? The joy of being able to give up, the joy of being able to sacrifice, the joy. We should of, be jealous. We should be we jealous. Should be of je that. You should be jealous of me that I had the opportunity to go on a 56-day hunger strike. And again, I'll say about myself, you know, something goes wrong. We don't get our way. Um, you know, catastrophe, it's horrible. We're not, we don't have that level of sacrifice. We were not indoctrinated with the values that the joy in being able to give up something on behalf of your creator. I love that. I also love his line, I have my own commander. I thought that's a wonderful line, also. That was a great line. Rabbi Moskowitz always said this I don't think you go five to six, I don't think you go five and a half hours on a hunger strike. <laughs> I miss lunch. You don't want to be around me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 56 days. I like my odds 56 days. You're odd. You know, I got plenty of backup, but. Robert Brody, what did you think? What's your big takeaway? It's amazing. First of all, I remember walking uh, to a Makolet in Katamon, and this guy walks right by it. I'm like, is that Nathan Sharansky? It was like Nathan Sharansky just going to buy some groceries. And um, you know, one thing, it, it, it's funny. It's What you said is that maybe, maybe I'm just going to give you the opposite. I, you know, Sometimes when Simone and I, we watch, let's say, Holocaust survivors talk, she always says at the end of the, the, the talk or at the end of the movie, She's like, if that would have been me, there's no chance I would have made it through. I would have, I, I wouldn't have found the strength. I wouldn't have made it. And I'm wondering if there, if there are people that he's seen or stories that he's heard, where he says, "Wow, if that was me, there's no way I would have made it." You know, even on it from from his side, where we look at him and, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe until we're in that situation, and it's 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 like you know, whenever you look at Jewish history, when Jews are pushed against the wall. We find the strength, we find the inner strength to, to do things that are almost supernatural. And it's when we have, have all these luxuries, it's like, you know, we, we fall apart. We don't know how to deal with right. it. 
it becomes from the potential to the real. And that's the test. And Isaiah, the test really helps us realize who we could be, some of the latent potential we never knew we had. And if you'd ask Rabbi Yosef Mendelovich when he was growing up, he was a child. Would he be able to endure a 56 right. straight day hunger strike? Would he stand up for not getting a sitter? Do you know, he didn't complete the story, but he, his father came from Latvia to uh, Siberia and he had the opportunity to see him. And the Russians insisted he could only see him if he took his yarmulke off and he refused. And he didn't see his father and his Turned father right died around. while he was in prison. And yeah. he never saw his father again. And he doesn't regret it. He believes yeah. he did the right thing. The yarmulke is a symbol of being a Jew. And in that moment, if you compromise on your symbol, then you've compromised on your whole Judaism. It's just a different way of thinking. And it's a different willingness to sacrifice and compromise. And it begs the question. We asked this about the disco rabbi, Rabbi Grossman, last season. But what are we willing to compromise? What are we willing to endure? What suffering are we willing to take on? Um, you know, what inconvenience or discomfort are we okay having all for the sake of Hashem, our religion, our relationship with Him, for the Jewish people, Jewish continuity? We live in a very comfortable age. People, again, Corona aside and the challenges, it's pretty amazing, actually. We made it an hour and eight minutes into the episode. Without mentioning Corona. Without mentioning the word Corona or talking about what's going on right now and the decisions we have to make. Maybe we'll leave it that way and not even talk about it at all. But, you know, Corona aside and some of the challenges that it's brought, uh, we have very, very comfortable lives. I, I often think that the the person in our community who's the poorest, who's the struggling the most with money, has a more pampered life than the richest person a few generations ago. They still have a washing machine and dryer, and they still have a car with automatic windows and locks, and they probably have a smartphone and pretty recent edition of the iPhone. And, you know, yes, it's not easy. I don't mean to minimize the struggle, the challenge at all. Everything's relative, and it's very, very difficult. And our hearts go out, and we love them. But relatively speaking, it's not. So, you know, again, what are we willing to endure? What are we willing to compromise or give up? What sacrifices are we willing to make? He never saw his father alive again. He went on a hunger strike 56 days for the sitter. For 55 of those days, you could probably rationalize a million different directions and ways why it's okay. You made your point. Have a sandwich, you know, 56 days. And he's like, and I, comp I admit I compromised. I only got the sitter back and not everything else. And I ate. Wow, what a compromise. How weak he is, you know? So there are heroes who are alive today. That's who we should tell our children about. Not just uh, not just the problem. We have some celebrities coming up on Behind the Bima, but not just the, the very popular, very famous celebrities. Many of our children probably never heard the name Yosef Mendelevich, but they should. They should. He's a hero of faith and a hero of fortitude, a hero of endurance, resiliency. He is the Jewish story. And the best part, like you said, of Moscow, it's his Simchas Chaim. He doesn't think he is. He thinks what he did is ordinary. He thinks... You know, Nishkin Brera, there's no other choice. What other, right. what, what could you do? What, once he realized he was a Jew, there was no other choice. What, what else could you do? Really, really. Well, the, other, the other thing I, th I thought was amazing was a very profound sense of mission. At every step, you notice he always said, I wasn't doing it alone. I was representing. I was representing the Ribbona Shalom. I was representing the Jewish people. I was on a mission. God expected something from me. And I just, I found that such a paradigm shift from what we hear so often mm which is where people struggle, first of all, to feel that part of a mission, that I'm part of Klal Yisrael, that I'm on a mission from Hashem, that my actions matter, the way I conduct myself is going to influence and impact other people. And that wasn't taught to him. That was self-induced almost. That was like an intuitive sense that he had, that his existence on this earth was for a purpose. He was going to fulfill that purpose, even if it meant sacrifice, even if it meant going through difficulty, even if it meant hardship. 
but he was there on a mission. And his mission was to represent Hashem, to represent Klal Yisrael. And he felt that at every step of the way, and that gave him the strength. I found that amazing also. We, we know, wouldn't change places with him in a million years, but we definitely are going through a challenging time that that people, like you're talking about a mission, people don't have a cause. They don't have a cause worth fighting for. And we have opportunities, right? Rockets raining down on Israel, standing up for Israel, Ben and Jerry's. We have a cause, cause anti-Semitism. We have a cause, you know, to keep people safe today with a escalating virus uh, that's going around. But none of those are, are rally causes. Or Moscow, you're too young. I don't know if everybody Brody remembers. Did you go to any... Soviet jury rallies when you were a kid. I went Sundays. My parents took me. We went. We showed up. No, but I want you to know, um, when when I hear even a little older than you, people talk about that. I'm jealous of it. I'm in a weird way. I'm jealous of those experiences. I'm jealous of a generation that came up through the Soviet jury movement where they talk with great passion about going to the rallies and the impact that it had on them and what it meant for them that they were davening and saying to Hillam and that they were part of something much bigger. And you're right. right. I'm not so much younger than you, but I didn't grow up with that. I didn't grow up with that. And I never had that growing up, that almost that unifying cause of Klal Yisrael of saying, we're going to rally on behalf of that thing that's bigger than us. I remember, I'm sure my parents went to these rallies. The only thing I remember about Yosef Mendelovich was Mordechai ben David had that song, Let My People Go. And in the song, I think he says, Yasala wants his freedom. Or there was some line, I think it was referring to him in the in, in that call. But but you know what would be great? You know, I was just thinking, you know, the kids they play today with the baseball cards. And you know, I remember they came out back in the day with Rebbe cards. You want to know it'd be great. You create these hero cards. Mm-hmm. You know, modern day heroes, modern day Jewish heroes, and all the kids start playing with them and read the short two sentences bio of who these people are. Be such a great. Hey, I would lie. I would, you know? First of all, it's a great idea, but I am going to call you out because you're like kids these days. Are we at that age where we're talking? Like, <laughs> you know, in my day, I used to trek 15 in miles up in the snow to show yeah, did. kids these days. Uphill both ways. Um, <laughs> going behind the Bima for a moment, I will say it's one of the privileges of the rabbinate. You know, so earlier this summer, we did a Ben and Jerry's rally. And for my kids, they know it's a no brainer. They get in the car, they know what it means, wave a flag. We, we've done, my trunk is still filled with the placards from the, Aguna rally that we did, and hopefully we're still working that Aaron Silver will give his wife a get. But, um, you know, so they know it's in the trunk of our cars. They've shown up with the megaphones. They waved the flags. They've held the posters, whether it's the Israel rally that we did on Palmetto and Powerline when the rockets were raining down and that anti-Semitic van passed us by. Our kids know because they're growing up in our homes. They know these rabbis are putting these rallies together. We're hosting them, and, and they're going to show up. The Ben and Jerry's rally, you both were out of town. I'll tell you a little secret. There were very few people there. Now, here's the key. There were two news stations. There were two corporate Ben and Jerry's people that showed up, and the news stations were on our side. So we packed the screen. I tell you a little really, really, really behind the Bima. The rally was called for 5.30 and a 5.29. It was me and Gila Stern. And I know the news was there. The news was going live at 5.30. So there was like, like these eight muscle men coming off the beach who were across the street on Atlantic Avenue. And I said, Gila, you need to go across the street. And you need to get those guys to come. I'll buy them whatever ice cream they want. They need to be in the camera shot because they can't go live for our Ben and Jerry's rally about Israel and just two of us. She went across the street. I don't know what happened. 30 seconds later, she walked back with these eight guys. I have a great picture of it. And uh, But then a few minutes later, a bunch of people showed up. Community members showed up. It was really beautiful. Flags, posters, the usuals. It was, it was the diehards. But it was not a big crowd. It was, you know, maybe a, a couple dozen people at most. But the news captured it. That's all that mattered. And Ben and Jerry sent corporate people, so it sent their attention. But I think that's one of the privileges of being in the rabbinate is that our kids know 
that we fight for a cause. We stand up for a cause. There are things worth fighting for. The things we're risking for, you know, we, we stand up for causes and we're going through that right now. You know, this week's parsha Shoftim is about Tzedek Tzedek Tirdof. It's about righteousness and justice. And there are corrupt Batei Din, corrupt enterprises, corrupt efforts, corrupt people. And, and when you stand up for a cause and you put yourself out there, you're going to paint a target on yourself and it can be painful. People can hang posters. People can uh, post messages. People can do unjust things. But, you know, for our kids, I think there's a powerful lesson in that. It pales in comparison. It is nothing of nothing of nothing of nothing compared to Yosef Mendelevich. But there are things that are worth fighting for. And, you know, our kids need to know that. Jewish people need to know that. Jewish continuity is worth fighting for. And, and Torah is worth fighting for. And Neshama, spirituality and outreach is worth fighting for. And Achta's unity is worth fighting for. And what does it mean? How does one fight? What are we willing to sacrifice for that fight? Maybe we should announce a hunger strike until the Jewish people get along. I'm in. By the way, I need those eight guys that you found in, in Ben and Jerry's for, for my big uh, press conference. <laughs> I'll tell you a great line, Rabbi Zev left when he was here a couple of years ago. He said, you know, we do our children a disservice because we're always telling them that Judaism is fun. We always try to paint this image that Judaism is fun. He goes, Judaism is not fun, but Judaism is worth it. And that made such a big impression on me because I think that's exactly what Rabbi Yosef Mendelevich was talking about, right? It's not always fun. Sometimes it requires hunger strikes. Sometimes it requires sacrifice, but it's worth it when you give up of yourself for something that's bigger than you. Yeah, we are already over time. I guess we're catching up from the summer. We have so much to say. We had much more we wanted to get to today. I want to thank again our sponsor, Alana Landau. I want to thank her for our amazing new logo, which we are going to put on some swag. Thank you for your swag suggestions. Necktie, kippa, safety reflector, uh, car magnet, tichel, tumbler, running shirt, tzitzis, tote bag. We got a lot of suggestions. We got to think about it, and we thank you. Um, gentlemen, we have an all-star lineup. We got three more episodes before the holidays hit. Next week, next week, Hold on one second. Next week. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Wait, wait. Next week. Hold on, hold on. Breaking I'm excited news for again, breaking news. I'm excited for a guest. No, no. Here we go. Sandman. Sleep with one eye open. <laughs> now, is this the. Is, are you most excited for our guest next week? Would you admit that? Come on. I can't hear, but you can't hear. You don't know no, what we're is? enjoying you bobbing your head. You don't know what that, is? That, that music didn't come through. It's Sandman. Sandman. Enter Sandman. Mariano Rivera, the greatest closer of all time. First ballot, unanimous Hall of Fame, 13-time All-Star, five-time World Series champion. Now, will and will I be able to behave myself? That's what people should tune in for. Will the Red Sox mm. fan be able to behave himself? Interviewing Mariano Rivera. That is a, that is a big question. Mariano Rivera is not Jewish. Why would be behind the bima be having him on? The answer is since he retired from baseball and even long before, he is a person of great faith. He loves Israel. He loves the Jewish people. He has stood up for Israel at great personal expense, personal cost. And we are. I am so excited to have him on. He is. Um, he's a Hall of Fame guest on Behind the Bima. I will say that we've had a couple. We've had a couple NVIDIA NFL owners. We're now having a Hall of Fame baseball player. We've had a couple judges. We've had some great Rabbanim. The following week, we're having Ramosha Weinberger, our first-time repeat guest. We'll talk about why that is. I'm excited to welcome him. And then uh, the week after that, we got Shaw Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, uh, a traditional Jew, also a fascinating person and a great author. Uh, so we got all-star lineup coming up. Really, really excited to be, to be back together and to welcome them. Amazing. Any closing, any closing thoughts after a long night? 
<laughs> Any closing thoughts? I have a closing thought. I'm inspired. I'll out. tell you, I'm very inspired by our guest tonight. I have a lot to think about. I think there were great LO messages in there. And um, I think he was a fantastic way to start off the new season. Absolutely. What are we fighting for? Joseph Mendelovich, what are you compromising? What are you sacrifice? What are you going on hunger strike? What are you willing to fight for? What does it mean to be on a mission to represent the Jewish people? I want to just take a closing moment. Good and welfare on our way out. Big mazel tov. Jacob Shulman, Daniela Kamenetsky. News came in right before we went online. Fans of Behind the Bima. I don't know if Eitan Kamenetsky is uh, up late watching, but a big, big mazel tov to our friends, Norm and Jill, and uh, to wonderful Simcha. So uh, Another Hollywood polka. It's great news. It is great news. And uh, gentlemen, it's really, really nice to be back together. You know, you feel incomplete. When my kids are at camp, our family's not whole. When you guys are out of town, we're not whole. So it's really great to be back together. It's great to be back together with our friends from Behind the Bima. Thank you again to our sponsor. Looking forward to next week. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the beamer.